We're in uh, week three today of a six-week series called God First. Uh, Many of you who have been here know that. Others of you probably figured it out before right now. Um, I want to just tell you real quick why it is that we are are doing this series. It's the way that we have chosen to launch a two-year-long generosity initiative that will move us one step closer to a permanent facility in a strategic location, a location that uh, will enable us to extend our reach throughout the northeast of Portland region, um, which we feel compelled to do in light of the fact that there's no other church uh, like ours in this whole area, this cluster of communities in which 50,000 people live, mostly most of those unchurched. And the reason why um, we are calling what we are doing right now a generosity initiative instead of a fundraiser, some of you have been asking this, one of the reasons why we, we're calling it a generosity initiative is because we are seeking to do something that is far more significant than just raise money. We are seeking to become more like Jesus in the way that we manage the resources that God has entrusted to us, in the way that we practice generosity, and not just for the short term, but actually for the rest of our lives. And we really feel like this financial challenge that's in front of us right now is something that God can use to change us permanently, to make us more like himself. And we've actually kind of structured this whole series in a way that hopefully is cooperating with the Spirit of God in that process. Remember, you saw those three words up there, commitment, vision, generosity. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about heart-level stuff. I mean, really, really um, foundational things about um, about who owns what we have and how God wants us to trust him uh, to meet our needs as we, as we live lives of, uh, just like Jesus, of giving ourselves away. And these next couple of weeks, um, we're going to be sharpening our vision. Our goal today and next week is really to see reality and to see people the same way that Jesus sees them. And then the last two weeks of the series, we'll get into those specific passages in the New Testament that actually talk about financial generosity. Um, One other thing that we're trying to do, um, just to encourage you along in this process, is to share stories of other white piners who are right alongside you in seeking God and trying to figure out what he wants them to do in response to this this, uh, opportunity and this challenge that we have. And today, um, I want you to hear from Ben and Andrea Heidebrink. Um, They're just going to share with you what God's been doing in their lives since they first heard about the God First Initiative. Watch this with me. I'm Ben Heidebrink. I'm Andrea Heidebrink. And we've been going to White Pine for like three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the verse, to seek his kingdom first and all the rest yeah. will follow. And, you know, that's what we're doing as we put God first and um, just in everything, not just our finances, but it's so neat to see the way God's provided and as we've given to him more than, you know, what we probably needed to, you know, and just the way he's, he's blessed us so much and, um, yeah. and been so faithful to us. I don't know. It's just, it's just really cool. Like Andrea touched on, um, when you give to him and just see him like richly bless your life and just like opportunities and resources just kind of pop out of nowhere seems like sometimes and 
we're both just constantly reminded how much um, God's always there for us. And, and we really like uh, that part of scripture where it talks about testing the Lord with, um, you know, giving to him. And, and he's totally done that. Like, he's totally given us tons of, you know, we don't worry about a lot of things. Um, I don't know, it's just been really neat to see him work. And um, just to prove himself, to know that we can really trust him and that we can put him first. A big challenge for me is just the unknown of it all. Um, We kind of have some ideas of what we might want to do, but we don't know if those things will happen or how we'll get there or what. Um, So that can be really challenging. Um, Another challenge is just am I really giving sacrificially or if I'm just giving, you know, a scotch more and that's good. Um, So just to really, the level of commitment kind of makes me nervous sometimes. Like, will we really commit? really like really well or will we just kind of you know we'll give them a little more um so kind of those two things just the unknown of it and um just being willing to really give sacrificially and genuinely trust him it's the same as the challenge i think it's exciting to not know i think it's really exciting to uh like when he gives you these little waypoints in your spiritual gps and all you get is the next little point. He leads you like a little bit at a time. And he's the one who's got the God-eye view of everything. So it's like when you're walking through the forest, you don't have a clue where you're going. But if you were in a drone and you could see the forest, you could direct somebody. And I think that's really neat. That's kind of how I, you know, I know Jesus Christ lives inside me as a believer. But just to know that God knows everything and know and he knows where you're headed and he knows where he's guiding you and he knows how he's going to use different experiences in your life to bring you to different places and how you can touch other people. And I think that's really awesome to like totally leave it to him and just kind of like, well, you want me to give some? Okay, great. And you just do it and you go along with it and like it's exciting to see what he's going to do with that. Um, something that comes to mind is... <clears throat> You know, there's a ministry out there, a missionary organization called um, Gospel for Asia. And I remember like a long time ago, I used to get their, their letters and stuff in the mail looking for support. And I remember there's like this one line at the end of one of the letters that always stuck out to me. And the president of the ministry said, um, like, God's going to work whether you get involved or not. But wouldn't you want to be a part of it? And yeah. <laughs> Yes. And I love to um, watch somebody who's who's able. In the, you know, they got a camera in their face, and they're just they're just talking about their relationship with God. And there's no doubt that that's real for them. That what the, what they're doing right now is really engaging with a God that they love and that they've trusted in the past. And um, they they believe that God has put them here. And I believe that for all of us, all for whatever purpose that is. You know, I don't know what why it is that you are here at this time, but there's something that God wants to do in your life. And um, may all of us be, you know, as responsive to the Spirit of God as Ben and Andrea are. Our goal for this, uh, for this whole initiative is 100% engagement. That's not, 
um, saying anything about dollar amounts or anything like that, but we're hoping that every single person who calls White Pine home will, will say, yes, I want to do whatever God wants me to do um, during this time. And I know that we're all at, on a different pace, and so there are some of you who are still trying to figure out what you're going to do. There are others of you who already know what, you, what kind of a financial commitment you're going to make. And we actually have a special event coming up this Friday uh, at 6.30 p.m. at the Ministry Center a mile away down Main Street. And um, it's for those of you who are ready now to kind of lead the rest of us in making your commitment. Um, and it, this advanced commitment night is going to be such a special night that we, we want to we make it right for those of you that want to come to this. And so we just need to know that you're going to come. So we need for you to RSVP and say, hey, I want to be a part of that. Everybody's invited, but you, we, we would like to know that you're coming so that we can plan well. So right now, I wonder if you would help me with this. Um, if you have your, uh, your mobile device, just pull that out right now. And go ahead and go on to whitepinegodfirst.com. If you, if you don't have that or you say, I have a moral like dilemma with opening my phone in church, that's okay too. Just pull out the little uh, welcome card that's inside your program and I'll have you write something on the back if you want to come to this. No pressure at all, but we just would like to know. So once you've gotten to whitepinegodfirst.com, right there near the top, if you just scroll down to you see a little button that says RSVP. And if you'll, you'll touch that button, it'll take you to a little short sign-up form. You can tell us how many from your family are coming. You can tell us if you have any child care needs, because those that are third grade and under are going to be downstairs while the rest of us are upstairs. And if you have one of these cards, a welcome card, just put um, RSVP. Well, on, the back, on the back of the card, just put RSVP and a number of how many from your family are going to come. And then, if you have kids that you'd like us to take care of that are third grade and under, just say two kids or whatever underneath that, okay? Does that make sense? We really appreciate you helping us out and, and uh, uh, doing that. Okay, now uh, we're ready to just kind of launch into the second phase of our initiative, um, which is the phase of vision. So open your God First booklet to page 36, and let's pray. Lord, we know that in order for us to benefit um, to the maximum potential is for you to give us uncluttered minds right now. To, be, to just help us to set aside other thoughts that we've had this morning, to have us set aside the stuff that's gone on this week. Thank you that you, you've got all that, and we just pray that you'd, you'd take it from us right now and that you would enable us to just be really good um, listeners to whatever it is that you want to say to us. May our hearts be good soil for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In William Shakespeare's comedy, Twelfth Night, a character by the name of Malvolio reads a letter that includes these words. Be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Tell me that stories about people who have greatness thrust upon them don't inspire you. Whether it's a story of a fictional character like, like Frodo uh, in Lord of the Rings or Peter Parker in Spider-Man, or it's a fictionalized character like Maximus in Gladiator or... Um, 
William Wallace in Braveheart, or a real-life hero like Todd Beamer on Flight 93, or Oscar Schindler in Nazi-occupied Poland. To see ordinary people respond heroically to unwelcome danger or overwhelming challenges is great entertainment. But few of us see ourselves in those stories. We can't even imagine that we might ever have greatness thrust upon us. Which is ironic because the Bible tells the story of unlikely heroes. And and all of us, every single person in this room who is a follower of Jesus Christ is in that story. It's not really a story about great individuals, save one. It's a story about a great team, like the 20th Maine at Little Round Top, or like that international team of heroes that worked together last summer to rescue those young soccer players from a cave in Thailand. Let me tell you the story of the people who had greatness thrust upon them when one who was born great recruited them to join him in an incomprehensibly important mission. Few who knew Jesus of Nazareth as a young man saw any greatness in him. Certainly not the kind of greatness they expected to see in their Messiah. Now when they heard that word, Messiah, those who were believers in God in Israel, when they heard Messiah, they imagined a mighty warrior empowered by the Spirit of God to free Israel from its servitude to the Roman Empire and to restore that tiny nation to its former glory, the the kind of worldwide prominence that Israel enjoyed under the legendary King David. And a quiet carpenter from a backwater town like Nazareth just didn't fit the profile. And yet when Jesus laid down his woodworking tools and took that no-looking-back walk to the Jordan River, John the Baptist somehow knew that he was the one. He said to Jesus, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus insisted on being baptized. He said it was in order to fulfill all righteousness. And so John did baptize him. And as Jesus came up out of the water, the clouds parted. And the Spirit of God descended like a dove. And it lit up the face of Jesus. And a voice came from heaven. This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus disappeared into the desert. Wasn't seen for the next 40 days. And when he finally reemerged, John the Baptist began announcing to everyone that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which made absolutely no sense to Messiah watchers since lambs have to die to take away sins. And, and, and they were sure that that wasn't part of the Messiah's job description. No, his destiny was, was military conquest and political power. But Jesus was not tethered to other people's messianic expectations. He knew what he was called to do. And he returned to his hometown of Nazareth to tell his friends and neighbors what his mission was. It was in a typical Sabbath day synagogue service that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he unrolled it to the place where it said, The Spirit of the Lord 
is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for for the prisoners and, and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he said to those who had watched him grow up, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You can imagine how that went over. They told him he was getting too big for his britches. He told them that they were about to miss out on something big that God was going to do. And things escalated until they muscled him to the edge of a cliff. But rather than allowing them to throw him off the cliff, he just brushed them off like sawdust and walked through the crowd and right out of town. He went to another village called Capernaum. And there he began to gather disciples, most notably four fishermen, whom he invited uh, to, to join him in catching people, whatever that meant. And then he healed so many sick people and he, he freed so many people from demonic bondage in that very town that the consensus in the community was that, that Jesus should just stop right there and stay as long as needy people kept coming. But he said to them, I must proclaim the, the, new, the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And off he went to other villages in the region where he cleansed lepers and healed paralytics and recruited a tax collector and hung out with lowlifes that no religious person would touch with a 10-foot pole. And when the morality police objected to his social preferences, Jesus just shrugged his shoulders and said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus continued to preach and heal and evict demons. And then he did another amazing thing. He thrust greatness upon 12 unlikely candidates. He hand-selected a dozen men, including those four fishermen and that tax collector and seven other equally unimpressive guys. And he gave them this amazing title, apostles, sent out ones. He made them his traveling companions, and he conferred on them the same divine authority that he had so that they could do the very same things that he had been doing. Predictably, they were unreliable apprentices. They botched healings and made mountains out of molehills and misinterpreted his teachings. But he didn't give up on them. He just took them with him wherever he went. Let them watch him do what no one else had ever done. Walk on water, feed 5,000, restore sight and sanity, raise the dead. There's no doubt that he was the Messiah. But he sure didn't go by the script. He seemed to be a lot more concerned about fixing broken people than he did with leading a national resurgence. He didn't organize rallies. He, he forgave sins. Whenever he was in an adoring crowd, he riveted his focus on needy individuals. He didn't take on the Roman government. 
He took on religious corruption. He didn't promise Israeli greatness. He promised eternal life. But surely this was just a prelude. No doubt the time would come when he would lead a revolt, stage a coup, storm the palace. The apostles were banking on it, especially when Jesus asked them who they believed he was. And Simon Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus gave them a thumbs up. Imagine how bewildered they were when right after that, Jesus said, I must be rejected and killed. And on the third day, raised to life. Peter who had just passed the Messiah identification test, rebuked Jesus for his pessimism, which is when Jesus called him Satan. Then Jesus took Peter and two others to the top of a mountain, and he revealed his divine glory to them. And then he went back down the mountain and repeated his prediction of death and resurrection, which again did not compute. And things went from bad to worse between Jesus and the religious leaders. He called them children of the devil. They tried to stone him for claiming to be God. They never stopped harping on him for socializing with sinners. Finally, he tried to explain to them why he did it by telling them three consecutive parables, each one with the exact same moral of the story. He talked about a man who had a hundred sheep and lost one. And a woman who had ten coins and lost one. And a father who had two sons and lost one. And every time what had been lost was found, there was rejoicing. Just as there is rejoicing in heaven every time one sinner repents. It wasn't long after that that Jesus said to a woman whose brother had just died, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he put an exclamation point on that promise by commanding her brother, who had been dead for four days, to walk out of his tomb. And then came Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem, the city that all Israel knew to be the capital from which the Messiah would reign over all nations forever. At one point, Jesus pulled the 12 apostles aside and reminded them that in Jerusalem, he was going to be arrested, condemned, mocked, flogged, and executed, and that three days later, he was going to rise. But the Gospel of Luke says that the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. In fact, they were on such a different wavelength that two of them asked Jesus, and this is right after he told them he was going to die, two of them asked Jesus if they could sit on his right and his left in his kingdom. And that infuriated the other ten because these two were, were, were angling for the same cabinet positions that they wanted. And once again, Jesus said, huddle up. You've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around, how quickly a little power goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then he added, for even the Son of Man 
did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's a ransom? It's a payment that sets a captive free. Jesus said that his death was the price that he would pay to set others free. On his way to Jerusalem, he found time to single out one more tax collector, a man by the name of Zacchaeus. In fact, he invited himself to Zacchaeus' home for dinner, and when that man repented, Jesus rejoiced in his salvation, and then he condensed his whole reason for coming to earth into a single statement. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And from everything he had taught up to that point, there was no mistaking what he meant. He came to seek out people who were on their way to hell and to change their destiny. To give them eternal life in heaven. But that that redemptive mission was not on anyone's mind on Palm Sunday. The day that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Just as the prophet Zechariah said the Messiah would do. Huge crowds laid palm branches and even their own clothing down on the path. And they shouted to Jesus, save us, O Lord. Save us, son of David. Blessed is the king of Israel. It was only five days later that those same voices could be heard shouting, Crucify him. Just as Jesus predicted, he was arrested, convicted, mocked, spit upon, flogged, and crucified. The Messiah died. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. But on that dark Friday, the disciples didn't get that. They thought all was lost. Here they had left everything to chase a dream, to be part of the inner circle of the king of the world. They'd been convinced by his miracles and seduced by his vision of a world restored. And now he was dead, and so was their dream. But we know that's not the end of the story. On day three, after Jesus died, there was an earthquake. Angels, burial cloths, a vacant tomb, sightings. And that evening, an appearance by Jesus in the room where his disciples were hiding behind locked doors. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. Whereupon they all wet their pants. Again, he said, peace be with you. And then this, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Wait a minute. What did the Father sent Jesus to do? To seek and save the lost. 
That, that was the mission of Jesus. And this was when he handed the baton to the eleven. This was when he thrust greatness upon them by giving them the awesome privilege and the serious responsibility of helping people to spend eternity in heaven instead of hell. What could be more significant than that? It's so significant that it sounds surreal. It sounds like a pipe dream, but it's not. It's true. It's reality. Jesus gave ordinary and flawed people what we call the Great Commission. And he repeated it in different words at different times before he returned to heaven. One time he said, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Another time he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now stop and think about that. What had Jesus commanded them? Well, a lot of things, but one was to go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Do you realize what that means? It means that it it was not only the original 11 disciples who were called to seek and to save the lost, but everyone that they baptized and that they taught the commands of Jesus to were also called to do that. Why, it even trickles down to us. How do you wrap your head around that? Jesus told his disciples not to head out immediately, but to wait to be baptized with the Holy Spirit so that they would be clothed with power from on high, which is essential when you're trying to persuade people who are hell-bent on going one way to do a complete 180. But they weren't listening very well because his resurrection had reignited their nationalism. They asked him in Acts 1, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But track with me. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, their impact would would spread out in ripples. First locally, then regionally, then internationally. And right after Jesus said that, he went vertical. His body lifted off from planet Earth, went straight up into the clouds. Two angels appeared and told them that that Jesus would one day suddenly come back down in the same way that he went up. And the apostles immediately called a prayer meeting. They, They brought together all 120 followers of Jesus, and they began to pray fervently and constantly for this baptism of the Spirit that Jesus promised. Day after day they prayed for somewhere between seven and ten days, and suddenly it happened. They were all together, most likely praying when the sound of a of a violent wind filled this room where they were at. And this huge fireball appeared, and, and, it, and it broke apart in a 120 little fires that landed on each of them individually, and they all started praising God, but not in their own language. They were doing it in languages that they had never learned. 
And, and, and there are other pilgrims in Jerusalem who did speak those languages. They were their native languages. And so this drew this massive crowd of people. And, and Peter had the opportunity to tell them in the trade language that all of them understood the good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and some 3,000 people repented and were baptized on that very day. Not long after that, the Holy Spirit enabled Peter to heal a paralyzed beggar. And that also drew a crowd. He preached the gospel to that crowd. And so many people believe that the church in Jerusalem grew to about 5,000 people. But it also landed Peter and another apostle by the name of John in jail. And when they were questioned by the authorities, Peter preached the gospel to them. They said, you're going to have to stop doing that. No more preaching about Jesus. Peter and John said, we can't help but talk about what we have seen and heard. And again, they warned them, you keep doing this, something bad's going to happen to you. But they finally let them go, and the two of them went straight back to the church, and they called another prayer meeting. And one of the things they prayed was this, Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And Acts 4 says that after they played, they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, when they prayed that the Lord would enable his servants to speak his word with great boldness, they were thinking of the apostles. But God wasn't. He enabled all of them to speak his word with great boldness. Why? Because every Christian is God's servant. The Great Commission is for every single follower of Jesus. Did they finally get that? Nope. Two verses later, the text says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's in Acts 4. And guess who does all the preaching in Acts 5? Yep, just the apostles. The church members concurred that seeking and saving the lost was best left to trained professionals. And finally in Acts 6, a layman, a non-apostle by the name of Stephen, said, nuts to this, I want to get in on the action. And so he started to share his faith. And do you know what the people who he shared his faith with did to him? They stoned him. They killed him which probably made the other Christians say, that's what happens when you give the job to an amateur. But Acts 8 says that on the day that Stephen died, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Wait a minute. That was where Jesus told the apostles to be his witnesses. But who went there? All except the apostles. And what did all those non-apostles do in Judea and Samaria? Acts 8.4 says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. God had to take the apostles out of the picture for the rest of the Christians to realize that he had thrust greatness upon them. And it was then when those reluctant Anonymous heroes acknowledged their calling, their commission, that the world was turned upside down. 
or I should say right side up. By the second century, the gospel had spread to the entire Roman Empire, and it continued to saturate the Western world in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And then in 1620, and again in 1629, Christians came to North America to escape persecution in Europe. That's how the gospel came to New England. The church grew here through the Great Awakening of the 1730s and the 1740s, when men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield preached in towns like York and Wells and Biddeford. And it continued to grow during the Second Great Awakening in the 1790s. And there is still today a remnant of that work of the Spirit. In fact, in 2001, there was a little cluster of Christians right here in Cumberland who were led by God to plant a church that they could invite their non-Christian friends to. They called it White Pine Community Church. And now, 18 years later, having significantly impacted our own Jerusalem, we are seeking to extend our reach to our Judea and Samaria. Not because we think we're anything special, but because Jesus commissioned us and empowered us to be his witnesses locally, regionally, and internationally. See, we have had greatness thrust upon us. We have been called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus by seeking and saving the lost. The church, at least in these parts, has been caricatured as an odd little collection of simpletons circling the wagons, and telling themselves fairy tales to anesthetize themselves against the harsh realities of life. But the truth is, we are soldiers following the example of Jesus in making costly sacrifices and taking courageous action to help as many people as possible end up in heaven instead of hell. There's an audience in heaven watching our story unfold, watching to see if we will get swallowed up by this myopic and materialistic culture or risk everything on the hope of eternity and on the priceless value of every soul. Of course, White Pine's just one little regiment in God's army, but what we do at this moment in our history will to a large extent determine the advance of the kingdom of God in a region where 50,000 souls are currently on a dreadful trajectory. Why God would choose ordinary people like us to play such a critical role at this time in this place is beyond me. But I, for one, intend to rise to the challenge. And I am in a room full of people who have in them that same latent heroism. And I believe that history will record that we did not shrink back, but embraced the greatness that was thrust upon us.